We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Here's Scott Thompson. Jen and Dave in the newsroom, Erskine booking the guests, and Matt Taylor on the board. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson in 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us your last word. You can join us two hours from now for Hamilton's favorite game show, Hammerhead Trivia, coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. All right. The reason playing the Sinead. Uh, okay, for the first time ever, in um, music history, uh, the top five positions in the North American singles charts were held by female artists. Number five was Janet Jackson. Number four was Wilson Phillips. Number three was Sinead O'Connor. However, it was um, not the Emperor's New Clothes. It was um, the other slow one, but I didn't like that one. And then number two uh, was Hart. And then the, uh, number one is uh, Madonna's Vogue. So there you go. We're going to feature all three of those as we go over the course of the day. Hart, all I want to do is make love to you. 1990 uh, coming in at number two from uh, uh, for them. So there you have it. Uh, first. First time ever, top five positions on the North American singles charts held by female artists. We'll uh, feature that throughout the afternoon. Feel free to jump into the fray. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Participate. And don't forget, it is an all-request Friday. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite going in and out of uh, interviews and such, call Matt Taylor, 905-645-3221, and join us for this all-request Friday. All right, another... uh, (laughs) It's another interesting day in politics as uh, the fallout from the uh, uh, the David Johnston, uh, I guess, uh, revelation that there will not be a public inquiry called for all these top secret uh, reasons. And again, I just find it really hard to believe. Canadians want to know what the Prime Minister knew and when he knew it regarding interference in the last two elections by the Chinese Communist Party. Very simple question. I don't think we have to get anybody killed or reveal any deep, dark, dirty secrets to get to that. Uh, if the Prime Minister would just answer the question and be honest and forthright, but instead, no, we have committee after committee uh, and um, no public inquiry, and and here we go. Well, how do you feel about it? Well, apparently not good, and Angus Reid is the first. Uh, Canada's nonprofit foundation committed to independent research, first ones to come out with a poll saying Canadians are calling for a public inquiry, and the majority call government responsive as evasive. Uh, so here we have it. Uh, has this helped Canada, or has this just deepened the divide? Uh, David Johnson's, this is from Angus Reid, uh, independent uh, poll and research. Uh, David Johnson's decision not to call a public inquiry into what the Trudeau government knew and how it reacted to attempted election interference by the Beijing regime caught many political watchers by surprise. New data from nonprofit Angus Reid Institute finds Canadians leaning towards the view that the special rapporteur erred in judgment aired in judgment a national public opinion survey self-commissioned this week by angus reed finds that uh 52 percent say an inquiry should have been called while one in three feel it was unnecessary only one in three feel that no uh 60 percent were unsure so uh, astounding uh, uh, revelations and again I, I i'm not sure what david johnston's speech the other day did to help canada in any way shape or form but here are some of the key findings from Angus Reid out today. Which of the two statements below is closer to your own point of view regarding a formal public inquiry? Which of the two statements below is closer to your point of view regarding a formal public inquiry? Uh, 52%, a public inquiry is needed. There is more to learn. 32%, uh, a public inquiry not needed. It won't tell us anything more. 16%, not sure, can't say. Based on what you've seen, read, or heard, what do you think? Do you believe the Chinese government tried to interfere in Canadian elections? 36% said definitely. 31% said probably. 15% said maybe. 
leaving only a small percentage not sure, or sorry, no, not at all, and 16% not sure. 36%, 31%, definitely or probably. Uh, here's another one. Based on what you've seen, read, or heard, what do you think? Do you believe the Chinese government tried to interfere in Canadian elections? 36% say definitely. 31% say probably. 15% say maybe. And the not at all is minuscule. 16% saying that they're uh, uh, not sure. And then how important do you believe is this issue of potential government, Chinese government interference in Canadian elections? How important do you believe this issue to be? 38% are saying very important. 45% are saying important. So that's over 80% right there. Uh, 10% say, nope, not that important. And 6% are saying they're not sure or they can't say. So, uh, you know, you can slice and dice this no matter uh, any way you want. But the majority of of Canadians do not agree with what David Johnston has said. And the majority of Canadians believe that there's interference by the Chinese regime on elections in Canada. And want a public inquiry into this. So it is going to be fascinating to see how this moves forward because it it looks like this has not certainly solved any issue whatsoever um, because Canadians just have more questions than they do answers. So how anyone could think that that would solve the problem uh, is beyond me. My prediction? Here's my prediction. That the government is waiting to see what the fallout is on David Johnston's report. And all it has seemed to done is taken a man of high reputation and diminished it greatly. And then I believe what the prime minister is going to do is call is, is, is come up with some sort of other solution, whether it's calling a public inquiry finally himself. I don't know. Or other some sort of investigation to try to calm the waters, but clearly uh, this is not going away. And uh, the report from David Johnston just seems to have uh, thrown more fuel on the fire. It is three twenty. It's Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor on the board. Erskine booking the guests. Diane and Day are no. <laughs> In the newsroom, Jen and Dave, feel free to jump into the fun. Join us, too, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave a last word. You can join us for Hammerhead Trivia after the 5 o'clock news. And it's an All Request Friday edition of, so if you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite, uh, hit up Matt at 905-645-3221. Concession Street's heel has taken off, uh, all starting during the global pandemic. Owners Jesse Davidson and Jay Zaccato opened their first smoothie bar storefront on Concession Street, June of 2019. Since their first storefront, they've launched a pilot veggie burger bar, then another pilot Detroit-style pop-up. Uh, pizza next door Uh, and since their launch here in Hamilton they've grown to more locations expanding into Burlington Guelph and Toronto also forming a partnership with the Toronto Blue Jays and just recently announced a new franchise target target of 30 locations across Alberta Uh, let's bring in Jesse Davison co-owner of Heal and with us now Jesse thanks for the time hope you're well can you hear me Jesse yeah so so, Jesse, to someone who's never been, describe Heal. What would they see when they walk in the door? What is Heal? So, Heal is a, a fun and exciting uh, QSR, quick service restaurant concept that brings uh, functionality to kind of quick service food. So, it's a, it's a nutrient-dense uh, smoothies and smoothie bowls, um, all sorts of kind of tropical fruit and superfoods on there. So this started, are you, 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 well, first of all, where did the idea come up with? What, what was your plan here way back when in 2019? Yeah, so my partner and I, Jay Sagato, um, we wanted to bring something to concession that was fun and exciting, but also on the healthier side of things that uh, kind of functional foods for uh, an everyday active lifestyle. Uh, so we had recently just got back from the West Coast and we had seen these smoothie bowls uh, acai bowls, as they're traditionally called. It's a really fun and exciting product. Lots of nutrient-dense uh, superfoods in there. 
and uh, we, we thought that would be a great mix for the, the people of Hamilton. So you actually started and they came up with this concept before the global pandemic. Yeah, we launched in 2019, um, probably about six to seven months just before the pandemic. So how did that throw a, a stick in the in the spokes of this, or did it? How did it change the outcome? So, yeah, when we took over the uh, the, the uh, lease on concession there, we actually put in a uh, bifolding window, um, which was really beneficial to us during the first couple months of the pandemic. We actually utilized that as kind of a drive-through takeout window, like unconventionally. Um, and so that's how we marketed it. That's how we kind of stayed open through the whole pandemic uh, to create a, a safe way to uh, serve the food to the to our customers um, and we were we were very uh, overjoyed with the support uh, community support uh, that we received throughout the entire pandemic and when you started this Jesse did you see the growth that you're seeing now yeah you know uh, Jay and I had no idea it would turn into this um, the Hamilton store and the Hamilton community has been uh, amazing. Uh, really built a really strong foundation for us in the brand. Um, you know, we still have a lot of customers that used to come day one, and it's almost four years later, and they, they still come once a week, once a month. Um, so to see us grow to, you know, it'll be six stores at the end of uh, June, it's, uh, it's really awesome. And to be a part of it, um, you know, I'm really, really grateful. Now, did you see the same sort of excitement around these stores when you moved it to other areas? Yeah, so it's um, you know it's kind of like a snowball. Um, it grows and grows as it as it moves along, right? Um, so, for example, uh, about four months ago, we we opened in a uh, on a location in Burlington, and uh, it was it was it took off right off the bat. And uh, as soon as the spring hit, um, even more so. So it's, it's nice to see kind of. When we move, move into new markets, uh, the brand and community that's behind us helps us to uh, boost sales right out of the gate. And talk about the partnership with the Blue Jays. Yeah, the Blue Jays has been an awesome partnership. Um, you know, being able to fuel those boys out on the field when they're at uh, their homestead, it's uh, really cool. It's uh, something uh, I'll put on my resume for sure. Um, and they reached out to Andrew, who's the kitchen uh, manager for the Blue Jays there at the stadium. His girlfriend was actually eating a bowl that she ordered from the store, um, and he said, hey, what's that? That looks fun and exciting. Um, so he reached out. Uh, we, we offered catering once, and then we, we've almost catered every single homestead that they've done. So it's really exciting to be a part of the Jays Network. And this all started on Concession Street. Um, is this the sort of thing that when you see the opportunity, you just run for it, or is it about having a vision and seeing it through? Yeah, you know, having um, a path is uh, is definitely beneficial. You always need direction. Um, if you have direction and you have heart, uh, you can achieve a lot. So it's a little bit of both. So what about uh, expanding out west? Uh, 30 locations, that's that's a massive uh, expansion. How did that all come about? Yeah, so actually early last year, we uh, partnered up with some uh, pretty experienced individuals in the QSR space. Um, you know, they've done this dance before with uh, growing smaller brands into national and international brands. Uh, they've helped us create this pipeline and network, um, as well as strengthen our existing foundation so that we can be, um, you know, multi-provincial uh, units by uh, the end of the year. So it's very exciting to see. Um, yeah. So tell everybody where you're located on Concession Street. So at Concession, we're located at 584, uh, right beside the Lady Glaze Donuts, which is a, uh, a new uh, donut shop in, in the area as well. Uh, actually, right, right in front or uh, across the street from the library there. Concession Street's heel has taken off not only in Hamilton, but Burlington, Guelph, Toronto, and ready to take over Alberta. Jesse Davidson with his co-owner of Heel on Concession Street. Jesse, a uh, great story. Good luck. Thank you, sir. All the best. 
It is 3.36. It's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Matt Taylor on the board. Always looking for your request on this All Request Friday. 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave him your last word. You can join us after the 5 o'clock news for Hammerhead Trivia, Hamilton's favorite game show, all coming up after the 5 o'clock news. This is a bizarre story. And if you've ever uh, you know been on a plane, sometimes if you're... <laughs> This may, uh, you, you may ask yourself, is it that easy to open that door? Uh, a passenger opened an emergency exit door during a flight uh, in South Korea on Friday aboard a Airbus A321. Uh, and you can imagine what that's like at uh, in flight, injuring 12 people. Some people tried to stop the person who was able to partially open the door. Uh, the person uh, detained and uh, obviously arrested uh, when the plane landed safely. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, Mackey International, an airline consultant, and with us now, Keith. Thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and I hope you are also. So far, so good, Keith. Um, how does this happen? What happened? Is it that easy to do? Well, there's a couple of questions. The passengers all should have been seated with their seatbelts fastened at 700 feet on final approach to the airport. At that point, the cabinets either completely depressurized or almost completely depressurized. Otherwise, the door would not be openable. The door is like hmm. a plug. It fits right. into a, a, an area where it can't be opened while there's pressure in the cabin. So whoever opened it was probably a pretty strong guy and must have known exactly what he was doing to unlatch the door and get it opened. Of course, uh, all we're getting is just the uh, the slipstream going by the uh, the cabin, very little air conditioning pressure going out the door at that point, but it certainly would have been enough to cause ear damage and scared a lot of the people that were sitting around it. It's an unfortunate thing, but uh, all we can do now is put the pieces together. So uh, this is interesting, Keith. So, uh, well, it, it, you said it was uh, approaching uh, the airport, uh, 700 feet or so. So obviously not in a high-pressure situation as when in mid-flight. At that point, it's pretty near or it is impossible to open a door. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct, because you've got the entire pressure right. inside the cabin holding the door in place. So at what uh, at what altitude, roughly, do you have to be before all of a sudden it will be able to open? Well, the, the cabin could have been completely depressurized at 700 feet or right. nearly depressurized. When you touch down, most airplanes have a system whereby any remaining air, if it were done improperly, is dumped. But uh, I've had a similar situation happen. I have had a cabin door... Uh, partially open at about that altitude, and uh, it makes a little noise. Uh, fortunately, there were no passengers sitting near it, but uh, it was rather an uneventful situation. We landed and closed the door. Uh, you said partially open. That's what they said here. What does that mean? Um, it Obviously, where we've got vision of it swinging way open. That's not the case here. No, I think it probably partially cracked. Uh, mm -hmm. enough to allow the airflow to come in the cabin. In order to open that door completely, you have to press it forward, and that would be against the uh, the flow of air. So I'm sure they didn't get it all the way open. They probably got it cracked open, and that would be enough to cause the situation as described. It certainly would have been scary for the people around who didn't know what we've just discussed and didn't know that the door couldn't be opened completely. So, as you mentioned, in the cabin, uh, you can imagine what that would be like. Now, if you're flying the plane, can you notice anything different? Well, you'd notice that the cabin suddenly depressurized if it wasn't completely depressurized already. Uh, other than that, you might not have, not have a lot of indication of what was going on. At that point, there was not much left for the pilots to do from 700 feet other than to continue the approach and land the airplane. Uh, does the door not being properly latched in place do anything to the structure of the airplane? Does it compromise that in any way? No, it does not. The structure of the aircraft was fine, so there was no danger that way. And unless what about... The, the door was ripped off or something by right. the, uh, the air going past it, but I don't think we were going fast enough to have to worry about that. 
So uh, that's another interesting point, Keith, because we certainly know under pressure situations that, you know, that could be very dangerous. So uh, to the people, and we saw people sitting right next to the open door, is that just really windy? Or are you feeling is, you know, what happens if a seatbelt is off? Well, remember that the door in the picture uh, was partially open. We can see one picture with a lot of air rushing past the door frame uh it would have been windy there it really would not have presented a danger other than an element of surprise and concern for people who certainly wouldn't expect something like this to happen but there was no imminent danger of anyone being sucked out the door particularly because they were all strapped in but their seat belts fastened at 700 feet and you talked about injury. What would that be? Uh, ear injury, pressure related? Yeah, you could have an ear injury or perhaps a, a, a breathing issue caused by the uh, the high flow of air around there. I think that they probably took, they reported uh, minor injuries amongst 12 people. And I'm sure that they erred on the side of caution and took anyone who might have an injury to have a, a medical checkup just to be sure that there was nothing more serious wrong. That would be the prudent thing for them to do. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, or alluded to, uh, Keith, would someone who was doing this have to know that that was the right time to open the door or even how to? Uh, we understand some passengers did try to restrain the person once they figured out what was going on. But would, would, would this person have to know what they were doing? Yes, they would have. They would have had to know the sequence to open that door, or which lever you push, when, and how you move it. Uh, They would also have to have realized that the cabin would be practically unpressurized at that point. So I would say that it's likely that whomever did this uh, had an idea what they were doing. You hear uh, stories occasionally about passengers out of control at jet altitudes trying to open a door. And, of course, there's no danger of them doing that. But down here, close to the ground, when the cabin's unpressurized, the situation that we just had can occur. So anything to learn from this, uh, Keith, in any way? Uh, Changes of protocol in any way needed? Well, I think the cabin crew is going to have some explaining to do as to how this person was able to get up and get to the door and be moving the controls on that door without him being restrained sooner. Uh, There'll be some uh, discussion about that and perhaps some fines against the airline. We'll have to see how things unfold when we learn more about it. And what is the penalty for doing something like this? I mean, obviously, this was in South Korea. I may not know that. But certainly in North America, if you're interfering with a flight or try to do something like this. Yeah, you're going to. That's a pretty serious uh, federal offense. And you're going to get to look at the inside of a jail cell for a while, I think. So uh, uh, South Korea has some very strict rules on this, according to the, uh, uh, the statements in the uh, article about it. Uh, it certainly is not a minor incident. Uh, Does this happen a lot, Keith? I've never heard of anyone successfully opening a door on an airplane in flight in a situation such as this. I've heard Hmm. many stories about them attempting to do it at jet altitude. Usually it's people who don't know what they're doing anyway and don't realize that they can't open the door and go out and sit on the wing for a cigarette. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's been some stories there. Uh, Keith Mackey with his Mackey International passenger trying to open an emergency door during a flight in South Korea uh, as the plane was coming in for an approach. Keith, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. It is 3.50. It's Hamilton today on an all-request Friday edition of, you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite, 905-645-3221. Call Matt. He'll help you out. Also, leave a last word. You can also join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Talk, text, feel free. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900chml.com. Teachers, unions, and food banks calling on the provincial government to feed not just needy students, but all students. Twice a day, the latest from Randall Denley in the National Post, also Ottawa Citizen. Unions want to turn Ontario schools into the priciest restaurants in town. To talk more about all of this uh, is Randall Denley in here now. Randall, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thank you. 
Uh, not much being said about this. How did this come about? Where is this coming from, especially when we're talking about so many other priorities as far as teaching and such coming out of a, a pandemic? Where is this all coming from? Oh, way out in left field, I think would be the appropriate <laughs> location to find this one, Kelly. From. So, so you have the four major teaching unions. You've got food banks and other groups that are, that are food activists, think. Have we ever got an idea for the government? So they wrote a letter, sent it to the government, which kind of took the government by surprise because yeah, we know our school food programs, but what they're proposing, of course, is, well, breakfast for every student every day, or, well, and lunch for every student every day. They probably give them dinner, but you know everybody's gone home before that. So. <laughs> So, and, and this is not just those that need it. This is for everyone. This, this, this is everybody. Two million students in Ontario. That that's where this thing just falls apart right off the top. You think, okay, so you got a whole bunch of people who don't need help. Their parents can feed them. This would be most children. Well, we'll feed them anyway. So, if you have more money to spend on this situation, presumably you would spend it on. Kids who are identified as not having enough food, you know, they're maybe in a neighborhood where there's a lot of poverty. Focus on that, which is what's being done now. But no, no, it, you know, it should be for everybody. When you're looking at this whole, you know, school should feed students idea, it's kind of floating around a little bit before this proposal. Part of what's behind it, too, is, well, you know, the parents, they don't really necessarily feed the children the right foods hmm. but we here at the school yeah. we feed them the appropriate foods because we know a lot more about what children should eat than their parents i'm sure that's true in some cases but it's a bit presumptuous in my opinion I, when i i saw that story first i laughed and then i got my calculator out and said well well how much money are we talking here because like most proposals that come from a teacher union there's no price attached to it. So, okay, we've got 2 million students in Ontario. But let's imagine that, you know, the government's efficient and effective with money, as it always is, and if somehow it's able to feed those students for $10 a day each. Okay, so now we're talking $20 million a day to feed students. Over the length and- of the school year, that will come to about, you know, $3.9 billion. Plus, of course, you'd have to build kitchens and hire people to work in the yeah, kitchens. Yeah, and the pro and build these programs so they work efficiently. You you wonder whether the people of the teaching unions have a a grasp of math at all. If you, you think if you were a reasonable person, you look at this and think, well, you know, you and I might think this is a great idea, but wow, is that ever a lot of money? That would be more than a ten percent increase in the entire provincial education budget. So most people would say, well, that's never going to fly, right? I mean, it's just, it's outlandish. But nevertheless, they proposed it. And I think that's the challenge that some of the teaching unions have, some more than others, but they want to be taken seriously. They want to be very influential. Basically, in the case of the elementary teachers, they want to tell the government how to run the education system. And, 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 and as you... Like this out, yeah, it makes you question the credibility. How do you justify this, especially when there is no need for everyone to be fed because they have their own means to do so? Would everybody like their help? Of course. Um, would every, uh, but it just, as the point you're, you're making here, I, I believe, is that with outlandish things here that just not only is there no need, it's just not efficient, it's not effective, it just it just makes you appear like you're no pun intended out to lunch that you just don't have a grasp on every other aspect of what is needed to educate our kids and where they're lacking money as well. And the elementary teachers have been running a a radio ad campaign. In fact, yep. their ad played this before the segment. Yep, and they're telling the public that Doug Ford is cutting education. Yeah. So if he were cutting education, and he's not, but if he were. Would this be like their number one priority to spend other money on? Like, is this the most important thing? 
all these cuts that are supposedly being made. I mean, I looked into that too, and it's just, it's just not true. And the cost of the spending on education is going up every year. The and as idea. you said, as you said, this doesn't balance with the message they're trying to sell on the ads that all this money's being cut, and now you're providing free lunch. Yeah, you kind of wonder, don't you? If, if these important, presumably important things are being cut, so you would think, well, your first priority would be to restore the service in these important areas before you would go on and add some whole new thing. But apparently not. I mean, that's the great part of being a, a person who just complains about the government, which is what union leaders have been doing, no matter what the government is, for decades. You never have to be responsible, add it all up, make choices, set priorities. It's just everything. We want more of everything. It's all good. We want more of it. Randall Denley with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and National Post. His latest in the Post, Unions Want Ontario Schools, priciest restaurants in town. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. It is 410. It is 900. CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. All requests Friday edition of. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Make sure you call Matt Taylor. 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. Erskine booking the guests in the newsroom. Uh, Dave and Jen, feel free. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. On this day in 1990, the first time that every one of the top five position on the North American singles charts were held by female artists. Madonna with the number one and Vogue, Hart with number two and this one. All I want to do is make love to you. Sinead O'Connor, Wilson Phillips, Janet Jackson, rounding out the top five. There you go. Now you know the rest of the story. Feel free to jump into the conversation, as we mentioned. Love to hear from you. And uh, Hamilton's favorite game show, Hammerhead Trivia, coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Uh, join us for that as well. All right. Uh, certainly still feeling the fallout of uh, David Johnston's uh, a report saying that a public inquiry is not needed. Uh, without, uh, we can't hold one without revealing deep, dark secrets. People getting killed, uh, falling off the face of the earth, um, dirty secrets that we don't want the world to. Everything is going to be uh, exposed if we have a public inquiry. You know, all Canadians want to know, uh, know is what the prime minister knew and when in regard to a Chinese Communist Party election interference in the last two elections. That's all we want to know. Committee after committee. Now, David Johnston has been dragged into this. Uh, and do we are we any better off today? <laughs> I think we're more divided. And Angus Reid is the first of, uh, I'm sure, many uh, uh, research and uh, polling institutes that will uh, now be gauging the opinion of Canadians uh, from coast to coast. Angus Reid, Canada's nonprofit foundation committed to independent research, says today, May 26th, David Johnson's uh, David Johnston's decision not to call a public inquiry into what the Trudeau government knew and how it reacted to attempted election interference by the Beijing regime caught many political watchers by surprise. New data from the nonprofit Angus Reid Institute finds Canadians leaning towards the view that the special rapporteur erred in judgment. The special rapporteur erred in judgment. A national public opinion survey self-commissioned uh, this week by Angus Reid Institute finds that 52% say an inquiry should have been called, while only one in three, 32%, feel that it was unnecessary. The rest unsure so fascinating that this is not going away which of the two statements below is closer to your point of view regarding a formal public inquiry 52 percent say it is needed there's more to learn 36 30 sorry 32 percent a public inquiry is not needed it won't tell us anything more and 16 percent are unsure as you break this down based on what you've seen read or heard what do you think do you believe the chinese government tried to interfere in canadian elections definitely 36 percent probably 31 percent maybe 15 percent not at all is barely registering and 16 percent not sure but 36, 31, and 15 are maybe, probably, definitely. 
Think about that. Based on what you've seen, read, or heard, what do you think? Do you believe the Chinese government uh, interfered in the elections? 36% definitely, 31 probably, 15 maybe. How important do you believe this issue is? a potential Chinese government interference in Canadian elections. How important is the issue? 38% say it's very important. 45% say it's important. 10% say it's not that important. 6% not sure. So there again, we're sitting well over 80 to 90% saying that this is an important issue for Canadians. And yet, here we are. And, you know... It's terrible to say, but I don't think we're in a better in a better or a different place now after hearing David Johnston say this than we were beforehand. Because at the end of the day, there are more questions than there are answers. So how is this possibly going to solve anything? And will the prime minister ignore David Johnston's recommendations? And after the fire gets so hot, just eventually call his own public inquiry? We'll have to wait and see. But it's clear this is not resting well with Canadians, and they have more questions than answers. We'll see where it goes. It is 420. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave a last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up uh, just after the 5 o'clock news. Hamilton's favorite game show, uh, Hammerhead Trivia. Feel free. And always looking for your last word to end the show as well. Uh, Canadian singer Celine Dion has canceled all of her concert scheduled through to early 2024 in a statement uh, Celine Dion announced that all remaining Courage World Tour shows have been canceled due, due to her ongoing medical condition uh, she was diagnosed last year with a rare neurological condition known as stiff person sy- uh, syndrome to talk more about all of this and what it means going forward Eric Alper publicist and music commentator and here now Eric thanks for the time hope you're well hey Scott how are you so far, so good. Um, you know, Eric, it seems that Celine hasn't been healthy since her husband passed away. Is that accurate? Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that today. It's what a horrible 18 months um, she's had. And then I went kind of even further. And it's so funny because when you talk about and think about all of the the struggles that Celine Dion has had since her husband and manager Renee passed away, um, Probably, you know, it all started when she was left off of the Rolling Stone list of the greatest singers of all time. I think that kind of went worldwide so quick and so fast. And and I'm kind of laughing about it because it's just it's just a silly list. It, it doesn't mean anything. But the amount of love and attention that Celine Dion had on her um, by not putting her on the list, it's kind of making people rethink about her career and how good she has been for so long um and then when she came out with this um very rare um syndrome called stiff person syndrome which is a disorder that causes muscle stiffness and spasm it only affects one of every million people in america um this just kind of compounds everything that we all hope that Celine Dion gets well. So far, there's no tour date that are scheduled until at least 2024. I'm not convinced that she'll go back on tour. Um, this is a, a disorder that isn't easily curable. Um, and we might have just seen the last time Celine Dion performs on stage. Uh, you brought up the Rolling Stone list, and we made light of this way back when, and we started yeah. playing all of the songs on the list and made comment, except there was no Celine Dion. Did that? You really think that had an impact on her? Because you I know, it I seemed, don't think it, it had an impact on her specifically. Although in quiet moments, even the biggest rock and roll stars have those moments of doubt of maybe they're right. You never quite know about that imposter syndrome that affects all of us. But I think what it did is it allowed the entire world, or at least social media and especially hmm. Twitter, um, to reevaluate Celine Dion in a better light than what right. she had been seen before. Um, I think a lot of people were like, hey, not my cup of tea, but you can't deny that she had one of the best voices in music history. Um, and this announcement that came um, down, it, it it's a little bit shocking because you when 
when you're Celine Dion specifically, you have so much tour history behind you. Not only is her Las Vegas shows the highest grossing concert residency of all time, beating out Rod Stewart and Elton John. I mean, you too is not even going to come close to the amount of money that they're going to make for this tour that they're doing for Octung Baby this year. Um, but her Taking Chances World Tour back in 2008 was one of the biggest tours of the 2000s. And so she is so in demand. She can charge so much money to cut, to go and see her play. And she's only 55. So this is really young to actually be pulled off the stage in her stage of her career. And she really, you know, you're talking about how she's had success since she was young. She really has known no other life. I remember being at an Actra Award thing, and she had just been signed by Sony, and she was supposed to be the next up-and-coming thing. She was incredibly young. And uh, obviously the rest is history, as they say. But it seems now she's very, very fragile in the sense that, you know, she's really sorry for the fans and sorry for, like, somebody who's just dedicated her whole life to this. And, you know, sitting here watching this, you think, well, don't worry about the fans, just get healthy. But this is all she knows. Yeah, you know, when she was 12 years old, she collaborated with her mom and her brother to write her first song um, Mm -hmm. called It Was Only a Dream. And then um, when she met Renee Angelide, um, her manager at the time, uh, she was only t- like 12, 13 years old. He yeah. signed her when just before she turned 13. So this is all she's ever known. Um, that The first couple of songs became number one hits in Quebec. She was an instant star there. Um, and then, you know, she uh, just gold albums from all over the world. Um, she was the first Canadian artist to have a gold record in France. <laughs> Um, in 1983 and and she was still barely a teenager when that happened so you're right this is it you know I don't think that that she's going to um, uh, she's going to suffer mentally from this because she's always said that her job now is to really take care of her of her kids the reason why she's in Vegas anyway is so that she didn't have to leave her children after her husband passed away Um, but Imagine that, like you are doing one thing and one thing only from the time that you're 12 and now you're in your 50s and part of your part of your whole body not only isn't working to the best of its ability, um, but mentally you, you can't do the thing that you love to do, which is just to be a singer. And all with one manager who must have very much been a mentor or father figure who then becomes her husband. Yeah, that was a little bit weird. Um, and it's still a little bit weird. But, you know, yeah. Celine Dion has gone on record and said that nothing, you know, nothing happened until much, much, much later. No, I but again, the point I'm making, Eric, is, story. Yeah. Yeah, the, the point I'm making, Eric, is just that, you know, she's been with this one person for so yeah. long who is now obviously at, and was so uh, had so much influence on her life and now isn't there anymore. Yeah, it, it's sad. You know, it, it's it's one yeah. of those things where I and you and I have talked about this. You know, you can have all the money in the world, but your health and your body just does not care. It, mm. You can have all of the fame and the love for somebody else, um, but the world and the planet just does not care about your health. It's got very different plans away from that. Um, and although that, I don't think anybody would have would have blamed her had she just gone from the spotlight forever and just, you know, just became a mom and a person Mm -hmm. and a human being and taking care of whatever she needed to take care of. But she still kept going and going and going. And recent pictures that were published in Hello Magazine from April um, showed her as pretty frail as to be expected by somebody with this um, with this diagnosis but um it's just it's sad and i don't think that she's looking for sympathy um Mm -mm. but i think she was just one of these people that allowed everybody else to feel good while she was singing about their pain and songs like courage and and it was only a dream and and those songs really uplifted people right around the world Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator, Canadian singer Celine Dion, announcing she's canceling the rest of the concerts through early spring of 2024 due to her health. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much, man. Have a great weekend. Four. It is 437. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Matt Taylor on the board, always looking for your last word and your request on this all-request 
Friday edition of Hamilton Today. Feel free. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. In the newsroom, Dave and Jen Erskine booking the guest today. A Chinese state-sponsored cyber threat actor is performing discrete espionage operations within critical U.S. infrastructure and may target other nations. Western cybersecurity agencies and Microsoft warned uh, on Wednesday. Uh, those operations may be aimed at developing ways to disrupt critical communications between the U.S. and Asia during future crisis, Microsoft said, a warning that could refer to a potential attack on Taiwan by China. Uh, the threat posed by the Chinese group known as Volt Typhoon prompted a rare joint advisory Wednesday from Five Eyes cybersecurity agencies, including the Communications Security Establishment and Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy is with us, technology analyst and journalist, and here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well, although I suspect my conversations are being monitored as we speak. It's kind of scary territory for, I think, any Canadian. We tend to think that we're not going to be targeted by, you know, the big four, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, you know, the major sponsors of state cyber insecurity. But, well, here we are. Now we've got a mountain pile of evidence that suggests, yeah, they're coming for us. And you're talking about it, uh, Carmi, so, and you're spreading information I'm not sure they like about all of this. But anyway, uh, we admire your courage. Uh, prompted a rare joint advisory from the Five Eyes. What is the significance of all of the Five Eyes to be on the same page here? Uh, incredibly significant. Basically, it means that we're seeing an alignment of West versus, you know, everyone else. And, and you have, you know, the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, they're, you know, essentially pooling their intelligence resources, recognizing the threats, even though most of it seems to be targeting the U.S. for now. The truth of the matter is, is Canada has been targeted. There's evidence that Russian hackers have infiltrated a Canadian gas producer's network. They've got screenshots. They were leaked. Maybe they're, they're legit. Maybe they're not. But it's scary enough for us to take notice. And the fact that the Five Eyes agencies are saying, hey, this is a problem now. We've got to be on alert. This is what you know we as a government and this is what you as citizens and you as companies doing business in these countries need to do to secure your systems. What's happening is these hackers aren't just trying to steal information. They're trying to go after infrastructure, trying to, you know, maybe figure out how to remotely blow up a gas field or, uh, or, you know, stop petroleum from flowing on a pipeline, shut down the economy. Uh, you know, we, we've seen similar, we saw the uh, colonial pipeline um, outage a couple of years ago. That was an infrastructure attack. We saw the GBS uh, meat uh, attack as well, where meat wasn't available across much of the U.S. for a while, a couple of years back as well. Increasingly, that's how you bring a society down. And we're seeing state-sponsored and state-related hackers. And maybe they don't work for them, but maybe they're independent. We're not quite sure. Uh, but we're seeing a significant uptick in this kind of activity, which is troubling because, you know, we all know, and living in Ontario, we know full well that our infrastructure essentially allows us to have the life that we have take that away we've all got a major problem in our hands is the attitude towards this changing are we taking it much more seriously i remember we were having a debate whether we should let huawei into our 5g system that seems laughable now oh yeah and and i don't think we are i don't think people recognize that this is a clear and present danger you're not seeing it uh on the news all day every day it's not being talked about to the degree that it should it it gets the occasional headline but then it kind of falls back in amid all the other news of the day, and it isn't really something that we lead with, and we should, because the, the risk is significant. We're not paying attention to it now because a major attack has not happened. Um, but we're seeing hmm. probing at the perimeter. We're seeing hackers figure out how to do it. They're learning their techniques, honing their approach. Uh, and at some point, basically, they will have that capability. And, you know, we will have had years to recognize that that was a problem. The time to start talking about it and shifting resources in the right direction is now. What do we know about Volt Typhoon? What is that? So Volt Typhoon is a Chinese-affiliated group. Uh, they, they have successfully, or at least there's evidence now, uh, that from uh, both the Five Eyes organizations as well as Microsoft, that they have successfully targeted uh, facilities on Guam. Of course, Guam is home to a major Air Force base, Anderson Air Force Base. It will figure very prominently if the U.S. wants to respond to a potential Chinese attack on Taiwan because it is in that part of the Pacific. 
and so we are seeing evidence that hackers are increasingly targeting resources there as a way of compromising the U.S.'s ability to communicate and move resources to and from Guam, which of course would affect the U.S. response to any potential Chinese attack. So, you know, it has major geopolitical implications. The more they can disrupt the way we communicate with each other, uh, the more easily they can achieve their military ends. And of course, we're increasingly seeing, we're seeing it in Ukraine as well, um, that as Russia launched its military attack on Ukraine, they also launched a cyber attack on Ukraine that also was global. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's happening in Ukraine. It can potentially happen in China. And we're seeing evidence all around. And if Canada is involved in this, our infrastructure will be targeted too, whether we like it or not. Uh, we remember uh, when Hong Kong left British rule and went back to China. Everybody was hoping this jewel would 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 teach them the um, uh, the right way to go about mm. uh, uh, capitalism and such. And obviously, the opposite has happened. Taiwan clearly a center uh, uh, for uh, all things internet, whether it's the production of chips or R and D or what have you. What happens to that industry if the same thing that happened to Hong Kong happens to Taiwan? The word that comes to mind to me is catastrophic. We are in deep trouble if we do not diversify our production facilities, if uh, chip manufacturing foundries, if they are not uh, shifted away from mainland Taiwan, from that geography. Um, and we are seeing moves by American manufacturers. For example, Intel is setting up foundries in Ohio, just outside Columbus, spending tens of billions of dollars to repatriate, bring some of that capacity back home, recognizing that uh, you know if something does happen in that region, that could affect the global computing industry, and nobody wants that. So we are seeing moves in that direction. The question becomes then, how quickly does that capability, that capacity come online and will it come online before a potential Chinese attack? No one really knows that. Of course, no one's telling, um, but it is worrisome. And as, as, as we've seen from, from major American tech companies, they're focusing more of their investment away from Taiwan now precisely because of that. Uh, haven't talked about this for a while. Only got a few seconds left. Where's the discussion on TikTok now, uh, Carmi? Where is that going? It seems that it's fallen out of the headlines. Yeah, well, interestingly, Montana has now officially banned it within the state. Uh, the, so that law has been uh, so, uh, proposed and it will go into effect January 1st, 2024, if it's not challenged. Our, TikTok has already filed suit, as have a number of influencers saying basically violates their freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So uh, there's no guarantee this will actually become law. I think it started a major legal fight. But being the first state to actually ban the app, it's going to set quite the precedent for other states and other jurisdictions, possibly in Canada, to follow. So we're watching that one very closely, and, and that fight's going to intensify in the weeks to come. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Always fun. Carmi, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. I will. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. Interesting article in the Globe and Mail today. Canada is on the wrong track as a place for business to invest, says a Globe CEO survey. Uh, the article goes on to say, despite the Trudeau government's repeated pledge that Canada will build big things here, a worrisome stew of regulatory uncertainty, high taxes, and what's seen as an unwelcome, uh, unwelcoming economic policy environment means Canada risks alienating, alienating the business investment needed to do all of that building, even as a near-term outlook for the economy worsens, according to the Globe and Mail survey of top uh, chief executive officers. More than 6 in 10, more than 6 in 10 CEOs believe Canada is on the wrong track when it comes to being a place for business to invest, according to the first-of-its-kind survey of CEOs conducted by Nano's Research on behalf of the Globe's report on Business Magazine. To talk more about this, Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. University and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Are you surprised at this? Is the government uh, interested in this information or are all these CEOs just simply money grubbing slugs? How, how does this get, how is this digested, Ian? Um, um, I don't. I, first off, I'm not surprised um, because the policies coming out of Ottawa, where I've lived all my life, 
My PhD is in public policy uh, concerning economic policy, you know, budgets, deficits, um, the role of the private sector, these issues, these very issues that came out in this poll uh, today. Um, and I've been talking about these issues in my classes for literally 35 years. And and just for to allay any worries of your listeners that I'm somehow in the pocket of one of these companies, I do not consult to any company whatsoever. Nobody tells me what to say think, write, or do. Um, and so this is just my own analysis of the data. I want to put something out there for everybody because some people can say, who gives a damn about what a bunch of CEOs think? We are in a mixed, a private mixed economy. The private sector accounts for about 60% of GDP in Canada, but similar to the states. In other words, all levels of government are about 40, 42% of GDP. So 60%, the majority of the economy is in the hands of the private sector. And it's overwhelmingly the private sector that invest capital investment, sometimes called CapEx, capital expenditures is CapEx. And that's building and, and investing in factories, in new equipment, new technologies, etc. And those are what creates prosperity. That, those investments are what create the jobs of tomorrow. In fact, when I had Philip Crossout, a very senior statistician at StatsCan, now retired, came up to my class as a guest speaker just before the pandemic. He said, if you want to know where your country's going, any country's going, look at the capital investment trends today, because in two or three or four years, because of the lag defect, that's going to tell you where your economy is going in the near future. In other words, if, you're, if you have strong capital investment, then your economy is going to be doing much better than those countries that have weaker capital investment. So, and who controls private capital investment? Oh my goodness, they're called CEOs. So we should all be paying attention, Canada, and listening to what they say. Whether you hate them or love them or not, doesn't matter. This is about our future. And right now, 60% of these CEOs who have the bird's eye view, the big picture view of where the country's going, are saying we are going in the wrong direction. Look, I'll give you a quick example for people who find this, you know, say I don't agree with you. They've been discussing the ring of fire for 10 years discussing and this is a government that says it should take two years to bring a project to fruition they're still talking about it after a decade forget bringing it to development forget building the roads forget building the infrastructure they're still talking about it after a decade and so my point being capital is very mobile and we face right next door it's a great advantage being next door to the largest economy in the world but it's also potentially a disadvantage because they're very quick they're nimble, they're dynamic, and they can take business from us and then drop a pin if we are not on our game. And what the CEOs are saying is Canada is not on its game. And what we're doing with these dragging our feet, too much uh, consultation dragged out for far too long, much higher taxes, uh, what we're doing is we are sending a signal to these companies, uh, we're not a good place to do business. Go to the States. But what that's about... Not, that's not good for us. I'll play devil's advocate here. We just gave $13 billion to VW. What do you mean, Ian? Uh, that's not the role of government. That's precisely what's creating it a bad place to invest. The role of government is to act as the referee of the football game. That's my favorite metaphor because I'm an NFL junkie. Okay? And, and oh, you can use hockey. I don't care. It doesn't matter. The role of the referee is not to tell one of the hockey players called Sidney Crosby when to shoot the puck or at what angle to shoot at the net, or when to pass the puck. That is not the role of government. The role of government is to make sure there's a level playing field, that there's a set of rules that are conducive to the game of hockey, conducive to the game of capital investment. It is not the role of the government to start playing on one of the hockey teams while it is simultaneously the referee of the hockey game. That's called a conflict of interest. By investing in one um, uh, plant called Volkswagen, the very obvious question is, well, what about, what about Ford? What about, what about other companies? And, and, so, and when I say what about, that's not fair, and they're going to start lining up sooner or later saying, okay, we want our share. And that, again, is not the role of government. That's why we have competition. And the, the winnowing out of com- competition determines which companies will become stronger because they're doing a better job at innovating, at, at doing R&D, at creating competitive advantage. And that's the problem is Ottawa thinks that that's its role, and that's not the role. That's not the way the U.S., which does have the largest, most dynamic economy on planet Earth in the world, that's not how the U.S. does it. And we should be paying more attention to the way the U.S. does business 
and they they create a they create the playing field, but then they stand back and let the companies go at it. And here we have governments trying to tell the companies what to invest, when to invest, how to invest, and they don't know. Let me be really blunt. Uh, okay, Scott, very quickly. And I, 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 this is not an anti-bureaucrat. I mean, my late father was 42 years in the government of Canada. My partner was 35 years in the government of Canada. There's fine people in the government of Canada. But to say that the people in the Department of Industry on downtown Ottawa on Queen Street know more than the people that run the companies in each industry is preposterous, ideological nonsense. The people in the airline industry know the airline industry. The people in the mining industry know the mining industry, and so on and so forth. The people in Ottawa, that's not their expertise. That's not their competency. Any more than it's my competency to say I know more about the mining industry than the people that run the mining companies. And that's the problem in Ottawa today. There's this belief that government has a superior understanding of strategy and competitive advantage, more so than the people who have spent their entire lives working in those particular industries. And that is simply false. It seems when times are tough, uh, instead of creating opportunity, we're giving out more money. I'm not sure Canadians want handouts. They want opportunity, a chance to succeed by themselves. Exactly. And that's what will attract businesses to come here. If they believe that the government is going to, first off, these CEOs have big egos. Let's be clear. They have very big egos. And the idea that they're going to say, okay, I kind of like the idea of Pierre Trudeau, uh, sorry, Justin Trudeau uh, or Christy Freeland uh, telling me what to do and where to invest and when to invest and how to invest it. They're just going to say, what are these people talking about? This is my job. This is what I've been doing and I've been trained to do all my life. It's like me going to Tom Brady and saying, Tom Brady, I want to tell you how to be a better quarterback or to Patrick Mahomes from my team, the Kansas City Chiefs. The idea that I or anybody can tell Patrick Mahomes how to be a better quarterback, starting with the Prime Minister Canada, is preposterous. We don't know. We're not as good as him. That's his job. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. That's why we pay CEOs the big bucks, because they've got this deep experience and they've got skin in the game. And the government doesn't because it's taxpayer money, not private investment money. And so we're not creating an environment that is conducive for companies to take risks and invest large amounts of money in the multi-billions of dollars in our country in new factories. The government's leading the way, and that's scaring off business. They'll say, they're saying, well, voting with their feet, and it's showing up in the, in the investment capital statistics, they're saying, you know what, I can go somewhere else. And there's this economy next door that's much more dynamic, higher levels of productivity, lower rates of taxation, greater opportunities, and they speak the same language, share the same continent, and I can go there, and I won't have uh, the, the president breathing down my neck uh, telling me what to do, when to do, and how to do mm-hmm. it. And that's, that's, that's the problem that we have today in Canada. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. More than 6 in 10 CEOs believe Canada is on the wrong track when it comes to being a place for businesses to invest. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, same to you. Have a great weekend, Scott. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, he is with us now, Scott. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I'm all the better for the music. (laughs) Hey, I have no control. It's up to the fanage to decide what the tunes are on a Friday. Good calls calls by the fans. Yeah, man's, and Matt's not even taking uh, responsibility for this at all, uh, as well. <laughs> I'm not right. complaining. It's great. No, no. It, hey, it's it's always better when somebody picks it other than us. You know what the heck? It's 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 interesting to hear what we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that note, uh, uh, David Johnston released his uh, the rapporteur uh, released his report saying that there is no need for a uh, public inquiry. That uh, if you know by simply asking the question of what uh, the prime minister knew and when he knew it in regards to uh, election interference would reveal deep dark secrets uh, exposing dirty laundry someone might even get kidnapped or killed lord knows um, so no public inquiry as a result of that uh, I was waiting for the response of course it depends on what side of the uh, the spectrum you're on but the polls are starting to come out Angus Reed, the first one uh, the majority of people still incredibly concerned about election interference by the Chinese Communist Party. The majority want a public inquiry, and only 22% said that David Johnston was the right guy for the job. So clearly, uh, nothing has moved the meter here whatsoever. Uh, your thoughts as we move forward. What do we do now? 
Uh, I am just looking up here. The um, you said twenty two percent said that they were in favor. That that he was no twenty two percent that he said that he was the right guy for the job. Right. Okay. To, so to lead this. Okay. And was, then the other ones yeah. were. Sorry. Go ahead. No. No. Because I was just as I was typing as you were saying that, trying to look up what percentage voted liberal in the last federal election. Because I have a feeling they do that, break it down. Yeah. That number is pretty close. It was thirty-two percent was uh, in the last federal election. So a little more than just liberal supporters. But here's the thing, Scott. I think that you can probably count those 22% of people who say that David Johnson was the right choice in retrospect. I bet you that if you polled every one of them, 21.9999999% would be liberal supporters. I just I, I don't know how anyone else other than someone who is a dyed-in-the-wool, absolute ardent card-carrying liberal with all the stuff that we've heard, all the reports, all the stories, how anyone could think that we shouldn't be doing something to find out what's going on and get to the bottom of this in the most official way possible. And public hearings with David Johnson, the same guy, leading them, I don't think that does anything. I, I, it just it, 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 it makes no sense to me is what it is. After a week of listening to this, almost a week, it just makes no sense. And somebody pointed out, way smarter than me, by the way, I don't want to take credit for this, but it was a valid point today that somebody, and I don't know where I saw it, that said, well, one of the concerns that David Johnson had was that because these are documents that are confidential, people couldn't see them, except he is not an elected official. So if it's okay for him to see them, surely some of these things are okay for the public to see. Or the general mm. outline are okay for the public to get a handle on. I, I, I say, I just don't get it. I, I just don't get where he came from, and I feel badly for the man. I really, really do, because he has spent a lifetime building up a sterling reputation, and I think with a huge swath of Canadians, he's now become a joke. Uh, do you think this has helped or set us back? Oh, set us back a million miles for, for a bunch of reasons. One, what we just said, we're not... Clearly, we're not really seriously going to try and find out what's going on with China's interference or not interference in our country. But two, once again, an issue that should be concerning, I think, to us as a people gets horrendously, impossibly politicized. We're now, apparently, if you are concerned about China... And a foreign, not Chinese people, Scott, we're not talking about the Chinese people. No, we're talking about no. if the government, if you're concerned about China involving itself in our politics, somehow that's political now. That shouldn't be political. It yeah, should not yeah. be political. It should be an yeah. issue that we all care about. And forget, yeah. okay, let's change it. Let's not make China the country anymore. Pick any other country in the world. We should. And be that's why perhaps... And that's why Canadians are all on the same page when it comes to this uh, this obvious uh, poll. All right. Uh, thank you, Scott. Have yourself a great weekend. You as well. Uh, hey, if you're going to be driving home, I would pack some granola bars and several gallons of water. You'll be out there for a while. <laughs> it's a mess. Again. I, w- I will leave it at that. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word, as Mr. Lowe does. Being typically Canadian, most Canadians have little or no interest in our government policies. Bought gasoline yesterday and said out loud, gas went up again. Person next to me responds, oh, well, this is Canada. Who cares? But when our neighbor to the south does something, the media locks on. 99, everyone.